I don't know if you've ever been through that succession where you started off. Maybe your relationship with God or a a season of life where you thought, I'm going to just devote everything I can to God and he's going to bless me. And uh, I'm going to, you know, really kind of change my ways or I'm going to start giving and then I'll, you know, maybe I can get something or I want to feel close to him or whatever. And so you take this risk and all of a sudden things don't turn out quite the way you expected. And actually, maybe sometimes things begin to get worse than before you made the commitment. And all of a sudden you start thinking, wow, I, I don't know. I don't even know if God can hear me. I don't, I don't even know. I pray and like nothing's changing. And it could almost be better if it got worse because then at least I know he's, he doesn't like me or whatever. I mean, sometimes you just sit and you think and you go, man, maybe he can't even hear me. And then at the very end, like we saw in that video, maybe your whole thing is, I don't even, I don't even know if there's a God. How do we go from being super gung-ho and excited about our faith or our next step or whatever and then ending up at the end going, I don't even know if God exists. Well, that's what we're talking about in the series. Um, we're talking about the idea of um, that we all have expectations. And, and so we, we've entitled the series Great Expectations, and we've been talking about the fact that these expectations can be very small or very big. You woke up this morning, you expected your car to start. When you turn the key, you expected it to fire up. Maybe if you have an older car, you crossed your fingers. I don't know. I tend to cross my fingers, but, uh, but you expected the alarm to go off. You expected this, you expected that. You, you came to church expecting certain things. And, and so we all have these expectations. And we talked about the fact that we have expectations for ourselves. Some of us in our career, it's not as far as we wanted to, we're not as far as we thought we'd be. And so we're upset with ourselves because we had an expectation for ourselves. Some of us, we thought our marriage would be different. Some of us thought our kids would be different. Some of us thought our parents would be different. And we have all these expectations and we move to a new house and we think this and we get a promotion and we think this. So we have expectations for ourselves. And last week we talked about the fact that we have expectations for each other. And what happens when your spouse doesn't meet your expectations or that new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or that new, those teachers that we thought were going to be awesome or wherever you're at, that new boss or that new job or whatever. We have expectations for each other. And we talked last week about what, what do we do with that? And the question we've been asking ourselves every week that I hope you've kind of gotten into a, a habit of asking yourself throughout this series is this. Do I want God to meet my expectations or do I want to meet God? Do I want a God that when when I have a certain need or a certain thing, do do I want God to meet that expectation? If, you know, if if for single men and women here, you, you have the expectation that maybe you'd be married by now or engaged or whatever. And it's like, God, bring me somebody, you know, anybody at this point, right? And, 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 and God's question to you, and I think God's question to me and all of us is this, do you want me to meet that expectation or do you want to meet me? me in the process of why you think that's such a big need and what, 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 what is, what's going on inside. And so that's been the question. So we talked about this idea that we all have expectations. We talked about the idea that expectations are premeditated resentments. We stole that from AA. Okay. And uh, it's the idea that um, if, if, if I have an expectation that I go to a restaurant and, that, and the food's going to be a certain way and it's not, then I resent the fact, you know, you've, 
probably done this before. You sat down, you thought service was going to be faster or whatever, and it wasn't. And so you resent the fact that it wasn't, didn't meet your expectations. Expectations are premeditated resentments. And we also talked about the fact that expectations diminish gratitude. If I expect you to act a certain way and you act a certain way, I'm not thankful because all you did was do what I expected that you'd do. And so couples can sometimes get all mixed up in this where, you know, you, you forget, you know, to thank your spouse for the hard work they do because you just kind of, that's the way it's always been or whatever. You, you don't thank your parents or parents don't thank their kids for cleaning their room, you know, and the kid's like, man, it, it diminishes gratitude. And then I got this on Facebook this week. Expectation is the root of all heartache. Thank you very much. Uh, it was uh, associated to Shakespeare, which it, Shakespeare didn't say that, but hey, he should have. So <laughs> stupid Shakespeare, right? Um, and, and so what, what I wanted to do this morning was um, talk a little bit about um, a guy in the Bible that if anyone should have certain expectations for God, this guy should have had some expectations. I mean, if, if, if one of my sermons didn't apply to somebody in the Bible, this would be it. I mean, if I were him, I guess what I'm saying is I would kind of expect God to treat me a certain way. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at his circumstances and we're going to realize not only did God not treat him uh, this way he probably expected, a case could be made that God didn't really treat him right at all. If you're allowed to say that, you're probably not. So I'll, you know, whatever. But but, uh, this guy should have had some expectations. So let me just set up kind of historically what's going on. The guy's name is John the Baptist. And I'll give you just a little... Quick little history lesson that'll be fun, and, um, and, and then we can go on. There's a guy named Herod the Great. Okay, you probably already knew that. This is nothing new. Herod the Great was the one that killed all the babies when Jesus was born. He didn't want uh, to have a competing king, and so he went in and they killed all the male children uh, two years and younger. Uh, really nice guy, this Herod the Great. Um, he killed a couple of his wives, and he killed a couple of his children, which, hey, you know, I can understand that. But, uh, you know, uh, but he killed a couple of his wives, which is frowned upon, just so we're clear. Okay? Really bad guy. As a matter of fact, what he did, uh, he was beginning to die. He, he knew he was going to die, and so he had uh, top uh, people in the, in the region imprisoned, with the order that on the day he dies to kill those people so that they'll, on the day he dies, they will be mourning in the region. At least somebody will be crying um, on the day that he dies. And so he did die and they released all those people. And in fact, there was great rejoicing both for Herod the Great dying and also for these people being released. So it, it kind of backfired on him. Uh, but he had three kids and um, uh, Archelaus and we don't, these aren't, these aren't the actual pictures of the kids, just so we're clear. Uh, Philip and then uh, Herod Antipas. So those are kind of his, those were his three kids from, from one marriage, okay? And um, they, were, they were clowns, that's why I put that on there. They're, they, they, they weren't good rulers, but they were just like any kid you'd imagine if you gave them all this power and all this money and you were a really bad dad. That's exactly how they turned out. That, like, that whole thing, that's how the milk got in the coconut. I mean, that, that, that's who they were. And so uh, this was the region. They divided the region up so that, um, so that one person wouldn't have all that power like Herod the Great. 
And so uh, that was from one marriage. Then he had another marriage and he had another Philip. Um, so he named one of his kids Philip and another kid Philip. So I called him Billy Bob Philip. And, then, and, and as we go along, you'll see how it all plays in. And then another Herod. We don't know this other Herod's name. And so I just called him another Herod. But the cool, there's a cool thing about this other Herod. He had Herod Agrippa who was eaten by worms. And I now... And that's the only reason I had it up there, because he was eaten by worms, and that's just so cool. Um, and so you're just like, wow, and it's Charlie Sheen who should be eaten by worms. But, okay, so you got, uh, then, then he had a daughter named Herodias, and you can kind of see the idea that Herod uh, is a little self-centered here, but he had Herodias. So let's just kind of see what happened. Then we're going to get back to John the Baptist in like 45 minutes. Just hang in there, Okay. So he kills off those two sons, and uh, he gets eaten by worms. And so here is the three different areas of the kingdom that are ruled. You've got Herod Antipas, Billy Bob Philip, and the other Herod, uh, who's got his daughter Herodias. Now, uh, there's another player that kind of enters in. We don't know her name. I call her Princess Jennifer. But they fall in love, or they get married, or whatever. And then Billy Bob Philip falls in love with Herodias, which is kind of... Like her, yeah, her, his niece, like, you know, from another, yeah, so really fun bunch. Um, family reunions were a hoot. Uh, okay, so he doesn't get in our story any longer. So here we are. We've got these two uh, Herods, if you will, both ruling the region. Now, I, I, the reason we're doing this is so you can get an idea of just how dysfunctional the government was at this time. Okay, I don't know if you're into politics or whatever, but it wasn't like this. You're like, well, okay, so uh, they go to their house for a week uh, getaway. Okay, this is, you can, this is all historical. And Herod Antipas falls in love with Herodias. Okay, and she, she does too. And so their marriage goes away and their marriage goes away. And then uh, here we are with there we go. Now, now we're, now we're, see how we're getting rid of everybody? Well, it's in this environment that John the Baptist steps into the scene. This is what's been going on. Now, to understand John the Baptist and to kind of get into why this, we're going to be looking at his life, John the Baptist, his story is incredible. His dad, when, when uh, his dad went to go do, his dad was a priest and his dad went to Jerusalem to, it was his shift, if you will, to, to be a priest and to have some priestly duties. And while he was on his way or there, I can't remember, an angel came and said, you're going to have a kid. And he said, there's just no way. And so the angel said, well, you're not going to be able to speak until that kid's born. Which, to which he replied, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know when it happened, but he couldn't, he couldn't talk. And so Elizabeth, his wife, sure enough, gets pregnant, has this baby. He can't talk. He just has to write everything down. And when the baby's born, they ask him, what's the baby's name going to be? And he, I'll bet really quickly, or probably had it already printed out, like in, you know, in a bunch of sheets, is like, John. And right when he names him John, he can talk again. To which his wife was like, oh, man. And anyway, but, uh, and, and, so, um, and, and so that's part of John's story. Now, listen, if that were part of your story or your parents' story, they would be telling you this all the time. Like, man, when you were born, God has got so many great things planned for you. 
And there was this great prophecy about John. And, and so he's heard this story from the time he was a little kid. Your dad couldn't talk and it was so awesome and all this kind of stuff. And you're going to be great. You're going to usher in the Messiah. And so then different things ha- happen in his life and he begins to, he grows up and he takes the Nazarite vow, which in this priestly line is like, you're just all in for God. The Nazarite vow, you wouldn't cut your hair, you would eat a certain diet, uh, you wouldn't drink any alcohol, you were just like, you were devoted. And then where we pick up John the Baptist's life is when he's out in the wilderness and um, he's baptizing people, that's why we call him John the Baptist, and, he's, and he has this this like prophetic hard word talking about the Messiah. And he says this, he says, the, the winnowing fork is in his hand and he's, he's sifting the wheat and he's separating the wheat and the chaff. And then he gets even harsher and he goes, and the, the chaff, he's going he's gonna to have unquenchable fire. Burn up the chaff. That's his like, gig. That's his story. That's it. You know, he was the like fire and brimstone guy. And, and the people loved John the Baptist because John the Baptist would tell it like it is. And those people were kind of under both not only political oppression, which you can see is messed up, uh, not only political oppression, but also their own religious leaders are oppressing them. And so John the Baptist would go after them. And he'd like go to the Pharisees and to their face, go, you brood of vipers, who told you of the coming wrath? He was just oh, unquenchable fire. He's just an awesome guy. Well, he also began to talk about Herod Antipas and Herodias and began to speak out publicly that this is wrong. What he did to take his brother's, uh, stepbrother's wife is wrong. And so uh, here he is. Uh, this again isn't a, a real picture of him, but it's pretty close. And uh, so he, he talks about their marriage and Herodias hates John the Baptist. Okay. And so she begins to plot, begins to plan, begins to kind of go, we got to get this guy. And so they put him in prison. And, and so he goes to jail for speaking out against this marriage. Now, Herod Antipas used to call him out of jail into the palace to have him speak. It it was kind of a, uh, it amused him. And so I don't know what John the Baptist came out and said. Maybe he just said, I still think your marriage is, you know, this is wrong. Or, you know, he talks about, you know, the coming of the kingdom of God. And this whole thing is repent, 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 repent. It's probably no different. He'd call out. Herod, Herod Antipas would call him out and then he'd talk about repent. Well, one time, uh, Herod Antipas ha- throws a party and he brings a whole bunch of other government officials and stuff and they begin to drink and party and they get drunk. And so for part of the entertainment, Herodias sends out her daughter to dance for them. And her name was Salome. And... Uh, the Bible, if you look through your Bible, you won't see the name Salome because uh, while this was happening and while the Bible was being written, there was another historian named Josephus. And Josephus tells this story too. And he actually named Salome. And Salome does a little dance uh, for them. Uh, that took me four and a half hours. No, it, it didn't. And, and so uh, Herod Antipas says, look, I don't know what kind of dance it was, but it must have been something because he said, whatever you want up to half of my kingdom for that little number you just did. 
And he's probably expecting her to ask for whatever uh, 16 to whatever year old girl would ask for, a new camel or whatever you'd have back in the day, you know, whatever was really awesome jewelry or whatever. But she goes to her mom and she says, we, we have an opportunity here. And so she goes to her mom and her mom says, I, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's what you ask for. And so like a good daughter listens to our mom, John the Baptist's head on the platter, to which Herod replies in Greek or Roman, oops. <laughs> and they cut off John the Baptist's head. I don't have a graphic for that, but you all look disappointed. You're like, oh, like a little head kind of rolling along. Um, that would have taken too long. Uh, but man, think about that. Like, really? They really cut off John the Baptist's head? A guy who, who, who gave his whole life to God? Did everything for God? It would be like, you know, we had Miley Cyrus up there for a joke, but it would be kind of like Miley Cyrus goes to Obama and says, I want to have Billy Graham's head cut off. And you think, Billy Graham's like the greatest person, like even people who don't believe in God like Billy Graham, like everyone likes Billy Graham. But it was like this dysfunctional, how how do you take this dysfunctional government with debauchery and all this kind of stuff and not save John the Baptist? Probably the greatest guy ever born in the kingdom uh, up till Jesus. Well, John the Baptist struggled with this as well. (laughs) And what we're going to do is look in Matthew chapter 11. If you want to take out your Bibles or iPads or phones or whatever, wherever you have your Bible, and turn to Matthew chapter 11. And we'll kind of get in the head of John the Baptist. But in the process of doing this, what I hope will happen is as you begin to look at your life and as you begin to get into times in your life and I begin to get into times in my life where I think God is absent when he just might be silent, I think there are some verses in here and some ways Jesus responds that are very encouraging. So uh, John chapter 11, we'll start in verse 2. Essentially, Jesus has just gone through Galilee and has uh, done a bunch of healings and kind of his name, you know, his ministry is really ramping up. And John's stuck in prison, okay? So when John, just in case we didn't know who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him a question. This is really important that we see. That's why I put it in yellow. He heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He heard about this guy's got some power. Like, like it's really happening. In other words, if your whole ministry is the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then you baptize the Messiah knowing I must decrease and he must increase, and, and, and you're going through this, and all of a sudden you hear about these deeds, the question John the Baptist is about ready to ask is is worth asking. So he sends his he sends his disciples and he says this, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, if you're just reading that and you think about a guy who's knows, I mean he he said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world. I mean he knows who Jesus is. 
this question might be kind of shocking to you or puzzling. At least it is to me because you're like, man, John the Baptist, your whole life has been for Jesus. You said, you told us he was the Messiah. Why are you asking him now? But wouldn't you? But wouldn't you kind of go, is this for real? Because I'm in prison and that wasn't part of any of the plan. You know, you're doing all these deeds for everyone else. Why am I still in prison? Are you really the guy? Why does it seem to be working out for all these other people? But for me, I'm in prison. And isn't it true that when we get stuck in a place in our lives, oftentimes we begin to turn to God and go, is this really, like really, this is really happening? I really got that diagnosis from the doctor. I'm really getting laid off. I tithe. Tithers don't get laid off. My expectation was that you were supposed to give it back to me, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. If I give you 10 bucks, you give me 100 bucks. Like, this is all working out. Like, I really risked. I, I worked hard. I did all this stuff for you. Now, now I get laid off. I mean, isn't, it's just natural. And so John's just kind of asking a natural question. And further, the way he understood the kingdom of God was God on the throne ruling over Israel, the actual land of Israel. And they would be his people and he would be their God. And so to him, the kingdom of God coming really had to do with, let's get these Romans out of here and let's set it up the way it was supposed to be set up. Oh, and by the way, if you're John and you're in the priestly line, the temple's all ready to go and your family's all ready to go and everything's ready to go. And you're in prison. So how Jesus responds, I think, is really important to us and important as we try to figure out what we do when we're in that situation. He says this, and I I wanted to stop on this verse just to kind of not have us miss something. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. And the reason I wanted to stop here for a little bit, because what struck me is the fact that when I'm in my own prison of doubt or circumstances that aren't changing the way I'd like them to, I often isolate myself. I often have a tendency to withdraw. I just notice this with a lot of people, is that when, when, when you're wounded or when things aren't working out, you want to withdraw, you want to medicate, you want to kind of just get into a spot. And this is what Jesus says. Part of what Jesus answered to him is to send people to John to go, listen, I know you're in your prison and you can't see what's going on, but others can see what's happening. And this is why in our church, we were always talking about getting connected, whether it's going to the women's breakfast that was yesterday or the men's breakfast that's on Saturday, to try to get as many people in our lives being able to hear and see what God is doing so that when we enter a time in our lives where we can't see it and we can't hear it, there's other people around us who can talk us through that whole thing. So I wanted to stop there just to kind of show you, but here's what Jesus says. He says, when you tell them what you hear and see, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is exclaimed to the poor. That doesn't seem, for for John the Baptist, because this is, Jesus is pretty much talking about prophecies that are being fulfilled. This would be language that John the Baptist would go, I know that, but, but I'm still in prison. 
<laughs> Have you ever been there? Where it's like, I, I know what you're saying. I, I got that. I understand it. But I still feel trapped. It's almost like telling me something about it isn't enough. I'd rather, if we're honest, I'd rather have you meet my expectations and bust me out of here, Jesus. You know, you, get, you got all this power and doing all these deeds. Just kind of like, you know, do something cool and like, you'll blow it up and let me come out. Because when you come into your kingdom, this is John the Baptist thinking, you'll get on the throne, you'll be in charge, and I'll be let out of prison. So let's get on with it. Okay, and he says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, the kingdom of God is here. Which is John the Baptist's first sign to realize it might not have come the way he had expected it to come. And so uh, Jesus adds this verse that is kind of the key verse to the whole story in verse 6. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, this verse can be incredibly frustrating to you or it can be healing to you. Depending on where you're at and how much into the kingdom of God you want to press into, which we'll talk about in a second. But basically, Jesus is saying this. I'm not here to meet your expectations. I'm not going to perform for you. The kingdom of God has its own time frame. It has its own agenda. It has its own value system. The kingdom of God is unlike anything you've experienced in the natural realm. And so if you want God to meet your natural realm expectations, he's not going to do it. Now, there might be elements of it. But, you know... So where, where, where does that leave us? Because we're just like, well, if he's not going to meet my expectations, then what's the point? Okay. Well, he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. There is a blessing to sticking it out. There is a blessing to every day going, God, this doesn't meet my expectations. This isn't the marriage I expected, but I'm going to stick it out. God, these, this was not what I expected when it came to my finances, but I'm going to stick it out. God, this is not what I envisioned when I thought of who my family was going to be, that I was kind of born into this dysfunctional mess, but I'm going to stick it out. This isn't what I expected for this. This isn't what I expected for that. But God is saying, listen, if just stick it out. Blessed are those who don't fall away, don't fall back, don't just throw up their hands and go, well, fine then. And so he says, blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. Now, it's, it's almost like Jesus, that's kind of mean. <laughs> like he's going, John, I'm not, I'm not coming. And you think, how can that happen? And Jesus begins to kind of articulate more and more and more. Like, don't you know who John the Baptist is? Don't you know he gave up everything for you? And so Jesus, it says this, as John's disciples were leaving, in other words, you can kind of see they begin to turn and then he talks out to the crowd and I, I'm sure they stopped. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? In which case you can just see the disciples kind of like stop. And turn around. Begin to enter into this, this thing that Jesus is talking about. What, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed 
swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? What did you expect? What did you think the kingdom of God was going to look like when you went out into the wilderness? And I'll bet a lot of those people had made their way out to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. They loved that language of the kingdom of God coming because the kingdom of God meant Rome was out of the picture and they get to right, take their land that's rightfully theirs and they will be God's people and he will be their God. And Jesus says, what'd you go out there to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. He goes on. Then, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you in more than a prophet. I mean, I'll bet, I'll bet John's followers are just like, oh, oh this is it. He's going to come back with us and they're going to bust him out of prison. Jesus is going to usher in his kingdom. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Then he says this, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, which is most of us, right? There's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's talking to John the Baptist's disciples and those around going, man, I know who he is. I know what he's done. I know all the things he sacrificed. And I know he's in prison. But then just like the kingdom of God, just like you'll see in your own life, just like I see in my life where all I want God to do is just meet my expectations, get me the promotion and I'll be quiet. Get me this, get me that, fix my marriage, fix this, fix that. You know, kind of I got myself into a bind. If you could get myself, you know, all this kind of stuff. Just like that, Jesus turns the whole kingdom of God on its head with this next one. He says, yet whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. You're thinking, I'm not greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says the kingdom of God is different. It's a different animal. It's why in this church we're constantly talking about the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. It's a different perspective. It's a different way of viewing things. It's a different way of viewing God, that maybe God is in control. Maybe, maybe, maybe he does have something to say about our circumstances. Maybe he does have something to say about our finances. Maybe he does want to be a, a, a deep, in a deep part of our life. He says, whoever's the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know what this means, really, which is super encouraging? God knows who you are. He knows your name. He knows your circumstances. He knows your struggles. He knows your hopes and your dreams. He knows your disappointments. He knows where you feel shame, where you didn't measure up. He knows if you could wish for three wishes, what those three wishes would be. He knows everything. He knows who you are. Doesn't that just beg the question? Well, if he knows me and he knows my circumstances, why isn't he doing anything about those circumstances? Well, Jesus goes on and kind of talks about this. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. You think, what? What? The NIV here, it's not that great of 
not that great of a translation. It, it, a better translation would be like the New American Standard, which would say, um, uh, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people seize it by force. They take hold of it. In other words, the kingdom of God is radically different than what we see and experience in our daily lives. And it takes real courage and a, a real aggressive approach to go, I want to see the kingdom of God here. Just like the question we've been asking ourselves, do I want God to meet my expectations right here or do I want to meet God? I want to be that kind of person. And again, violent makes it sound like you're, you're it's just this aggressive, like I'm not going to back down let my circumstances back me into a corner. I want to see God even in the midst of nothing changing. I want to be that person as David was singing. I've decided to follow Jesus and I'm not turning back. And if, if I never get out of this prison or my marriage never changes or my finances never change, I'm going to stand on the solid rock of the kingdom of God and go, I'm going to stand here. I want to meet God. It goes back to what Jesus was saying. That is a blessed person. You've probably met people like that. Have you not? I have. They're the people I want to be like. Where you look at them. I mean, haven't you ever seen these Christians? You look at them and you go, how do you do it? If I were in your circumstances, I could never get, I could never do that. I'd lose my faith. They're violent, courageous Christians. I'd say, that's not going to hold me back. My circumstances will not hold me back. I want to meet God here. I don't want him to meet my expectations. Well, I do, but if he doesn't, I'm okay. And then, to kind of add this thing for John the Baptist, this next word for him would have been very soothing and very comforting. Because one of the things that had to happen... Uh, if you read the Old Testament and saw all the prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling when he came to earth, was that Elijah had to come and, and usher in the kingdom of God. And if you're John the Baptist and you're in prison, you're probably going, well, I, I'm, not, I'm probably not Elijah because I'm not Elijah. <laughs> like, you know, if you're going to read that literally and go, wow, Elijah has to come back. So maybe Jesus is some type of an Elijah. Maybe, maybe Jesus is going to usher in Elijah who's going to usher in the Messiah, which kind of gives you some insight into the question that John the Baptist is asking. Are you the one? Like, did it work? Did I do it? And here's what Jesus says. He says, For all the prophets um, and the law prophesied, in John and, uh, prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah. Who was to come? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That's Jesus' way of just going boom. Like that's it. Like drops the hammer. Like that's, you know, whenever you see Jesus say, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. It's kind of like him going, well, I ain't even playing right now. It's like kind of just like the big thing. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he kind of talks about this with this generation kind of worldly language. That totally applies to us today when we talk about expectations. He says, to what can I compare this generation? Meaning, meaning kind of this, this particular um, worldview, if you will. They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to, uh, to others. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang the dirge and you didn't mourn. In other words, you haven't met any of our expectations. We did this and you're supposed to do that. 
And Jesus is like trying to wrap up this whole kingdom language going, you know what you guys are like? It's like you're sitting here waiting for God to move and meet your expectations. That if it's sad, God has to come in and do this. If it's happy, God has to come in and do that. But he's not doing that. The kingdom of God is violent. And violent, aggressive, serious people take hold of it, even in the midst of their circumstances. And he talks about some of these expectations. He says, John came neither eating or drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. He says he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And it doesn't matter what happens. Your expectations won't get met. So what do you do? Well, as the worship band comes back up here, he says one little thing at the very end that I hope gives you some comfort. And I hope kind of get stuck in the back of your mind about, man, should I keep going in this situation? Should I really stay with him? Should I really stay with her? Should I really be honest at work when everybody's cheating and they're all getting their numbers up and I'm the only one who does it right? Should I really, should I really hang in there? Should I really, if I'm if I'm in the warehouse and we're loading containers and unloading containers and, and uh, everybody's using foul language and dirty jokes and objectifying this and doing that, can I re- should I really like, keep doing this to meet God? Jesus says this, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. It goes back to that whole idea that violent men and women take hold of the kingdom of God. Those that are courageous to keep taking one step after another, one step after another, one step after another, even when God is not, doesn't seem present just because he's silent, just because he's not meeting our expectations. There will be a time, I don't know when it's going to be, when the wisdom by which you li- live your life, this wisdom of going, I'm going to stick it out, I'm going to stick it out, will be proved right by your deeds. Not by what you've learned, not by everything you know. You might be able to quote a whole bunch of verses, but that daily grind of sticking with your Heavenly Father. 